Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, We have a big deadline looming, another one. It's the January 1 deadline. I hope that everyone who is listening, who is a senior, is done. But if you are not, I have one piece of advice for you. Finish today. Just get it done. You do not want to be spending your New Year's Eve working on more essays and pressing the submit button at the very last minute. And you certainly don't want to be doing that on New Year's Day. So make a resolution today that you're going to get that stuff out the door. Uh, We're going to spend the bulk of the show today answering listener questions on both admissions and college finance. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about gap years as they relate to people, students out there listening who have maybe gotten deferred or denied from their first choice in the early round. So joining me today to talk about all of this is my colleague, who also happens to be a former Barnard admissions officer, uh, Mary Sue Yun. Hi, Mary Sue. Hi, Beth. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Um, We are both in the throes or have been for the last couple of weeks of helping our students, some of whom got really great news in the early round and some of whom maybe didn't get the news that they were hoping for uh, and kind of deal with the fallout of that when you're not, when you don't get in to the place that you feel like you you have to go to and um and one of the things that can happen and the questions that we will get is um maybe I should just do a gap year and reapply next year and so what I kind of wanted to talk about today was um you know what we think about that so let me put the the question to you and knowing that there will be a uh, a long answer coming, but what do you think? Is pursuing a gap year a good way to improve your chances at your top choice school? Uh, no, generally. <laughs> Maybe that's a short answer. <laughs> um, no, generally it's not um, because, um, you know, the student was considered within the early pool at that school, whether that, whether it was early action or early decision, and for in the context of that pool, the school decided that they were not admitting that student, whether that was a defer or a deny. Um, and uh, and for all the places that that I worked in admissions, we did sort of have an, an unofficial policy that if a student applied again the next year, uh, but didn't really change anything. They just, in other words, they just finished up their senior year um, yep. as they had been doing, and then applied again with kind of the same application that we were highly unlikely to change that decision from the year previously, that nothing kind of had changed and that, therefore, the student really wasn't going to change in, in our reading of their application for the following year. If anything, most colleges get more selective each year, so um, you go up against even more applicants the following year. So I don't think it's yeah. an advisable course of action. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think there, as always, right, there's a, there's a little bit of nuance, I suppose. I mean, here's the thing. If you were flat out denied from your early school and they don't have a policy of um, either admit or deny, so most schools out there in the early round are going to do 
some combination of admit, defer, so deferring making a decision into regular decision, or denying. But there are some schools, Vanderbilt comes to mind, where the decision in the early round is either you're in or you're out. They don't do any halfways. Um, so there, that's really, those are the only places where I think, well, all right, you weren't competitive this year in the early round, but it is possible if a couple of things did change in the course of that gap year where maybe you would have been competitive. But at schools where they, you know, where they have the option to defer, if you didn't get deferred in the early round, I don't see what you could possibly change enough that would make you competitive the next year. Because if if they didn't even think there was enough there to wait on a decision, that tells me that you just weren't, you're not close. Because a lot of places where, you know, where they defer, right, you could be kind of close. Um, and then just not stand out in the regular pool. So I think that's one thing. I also think... If you're if you're way off in terms of grades um, and test scores, typically there's nothing a gap year is going to do to improve that, right? I mean, you you can't you can't change your high school record. I guess the only place that perhaps a gap year could make a a, dis, a difference would be if your extras were not as strong as some of the other kids and you did something spectacular in your gap year. I'm curious if you can think of any, anything. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, even in that situation, um, if we sort of fast forward a year and the students applying again in the early rounds for school, they're not particularly far into their gap year experience. And yep. so, um, you know, presuming that they'd have to apply by November 1st deadline and they go off on some amazing gap year programs, and there are some great ones out there, um, you know, that, that um, are run by various volunteer organizations, but most of those start in September, and so, you know, at the time that the student's filing their application, they're probably maybe six, maybe eight weeks into the, to their gap year experience um, of perhaps a nine or a ten-month experience, and so it's not really long enough to kind of be able to reflect on it yet or... Um, be able to talk about sort of the amazing things that you did. And fundamentally, college admissions is based on a student's academic profile, and, you know, that's the biggest factor. And so the academic profile, meaning the grades and the test scores, really not, will not have changed um, during that uh, time, that, gap, that time from the uh, midpoint of senior year to the beginning of that gap year time. Right, right. I would say that a better strategy, if you really feel like this is your top choice, and it's a school that accepts transfer applications, mm-hmm. not every school does, you know, what you could do would be, maybe you could, you know, you go through regular decision, get into another school that you also mm-hmm. like, maybe you defer, do something super interesting with your gap year, then go to that other school do mm-hmm. two years there and apply to the other school. And then you're looking at maybe you have three years of interesting stuff that you've now done, which right. might make you right a, a much more interesting candidate. But to imagine that you're going to just play your senior year through and then take a gap year and that's going to make a significant decision or difference, I would have to agree with you. I, I don't think as a strategy of trying to get to your top choice option, it's the best one out there. Um, 
curious if you have other suggestions of maybe what, how, how, how do you handle it if a student is saying that to you in the throes of the significant disappointment of not getting mm-hmm. in to that early top choice? Right. Well, and I understand that, you know, this, this can be a stinging uh, time of year for a lot of seniors because sometimes your friends are getting into schools and um, it feels kind of like, oh, I've been putting all my, my time and effort into this one place that I love, and then they don't come back with the decision that you were hoping for. Um, so that's kind of an immediate, okay, so what can I do to try try again on this? Um, and so I'm definitely of the belief that, um, you know, and this is for, for parents out there too, maybe you or if it's your child, just need to take a beat for a couple of days and sort of, yeah, let let yourself play through that process of being sad for a few days. But then think about the things that you really liked about other schools that were on your list and really try and get reinvested in those. Um, uh, and sometimes that might mean, you know, going back to visit some of the other schools on the list that maybe you were kind of looking at tunnel vision at one particular school, and now that that one's off the table, you can kind of look at some of the other choices perhaps with some fresh eyes. Um, but I agree that your your overall strategy of, you know, taking, uh, looking at it more as um, a transfer student is a wise mm-hmm. one if that's the school that you feel like this is the one I have my heart set on and I really want to get my my degree from there. Um, trying as a transfer student might be a smart strategy, but be cautious in that um, for, for a few reasons. Um, there are some schools that really uh, take very, very few transfer yep. students. You can actually look um, at the College Board's website, their Big Future website, and look at schools, and you can see some statistics about transfers there. Um, and it, it does have, it shows the sort of uh, stark truth that, you know, there are some of the most prestigious schools like Harvard and Princeton, which really take only a handful of transfer students. It's much more selective, even then they're in- incredibly selective um, under, you know, freshman pools. So, um, just know that, and also know that, you know, maybe not for those schools, but for other schools, sometimes the financial aid picture is different for transfer students. So just you want to research any school to make sure that, A, transfers are, are a possibility that they do actually take transfer students, and B, or do they have any different financial aid policies when it comes to transfer students? Because I do know that there are schools who give far less in terms of financial aid and, and scholarship money. Um, right. Transfers. So you want to go and into that, that clear-eyed and, and be aware of that fact um, when, you know, thinking about sort of how to proceed. Yeah, and I also think it is just December. And yep. while, to your point, it can be very difficult when you have friends who are getting into maybe what they're saying are their top choices or just getting in and you didn't, that mm-hmm. the tendency can feel like, You're at the end of the process, but really we're at the beginning of the process. As I said at the opening of the show, right, that there's, there's tons more deadlines out there there. You likely have a whole other list of schools that you're going to be applying to. And I think you want to let the dust settle and Mm -hmm. see what happens in regular and, um, allow yourself to just let go of the top choice for now. If it keeps coming back, if it keeps lingering in your mind, then you can always consider, okay, well, 
you know, what are some things that I can do to ultimately wind up there? And maybe the answer is you wind up there for graduate school. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but December is not the time to start making your plan to transfer before you've even found out, right, where else you've gotten in. Um, And I think you also want to see what happens in this spring, you know, you might be surprised. You you could fall in love with another school that is happy to have you. You could end up um, potentially getting um, a waitlist offer. Maybe a waitlist offer tells you a little bit more. Maybe about you know that you were perhaps on the cusp. Again, tricky because sometimes the waitlist schools have. Uh, are the the schools that are waitlisting students are waitlisting as many students as they are admitting students. So it's almost, as I often say, it's kind of a nice way to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily tell you that you were super close or on the cusp. But, um, you know, I just there's so much left to play out that this idea that, OK, I'm going to take a gap year and then I'm going to reapply is such it's really a knee jerk reaction. And I would encourage as much as possible to sort of steer clear of that if you can wait until you have all options in front of you and then make a thoughtful decision about what the right thing to do is. And, um, you know, the other thing I always like to point out are the challenges involved in applying to schools from a gap year um, mm-hmm. when you're no longer in high school, right? I mean, your guidance counselor has moved on. They have a whole new group of students that they're going to be supporting in the admissions process. And it can be hard to sometimes, I, you know, guidance counselors are, they do so much and they want to help every student. That's why they do their job. But it's hard sometimes to help a student who you've already helped <laughs> and in many cases helped to get some positive decisions already. And then to have that student coming back, you know, a lot of times the most that they can even do for you is probably to provide a letter of recommendation and get your, your transcripts submitted. And the letter of recommendation may be the same one they submitted last year. Um, you know, just curious if you have any thoughts about that piece of it, of applying from a gap year when you're not in to a school. Yes, particularly, it's definitely more difficult, um, particularly if the student is, you know, now living away from where their hometown is and or perhaps abroad um, in a program um, and there's time differences and things, it can be much more difficult to coordinate what's being sent when. Um, in most cases, in, in, when I saw those applications again, the guidance counselor and the teachers just reused the recommendations that they had sent the previous year. Maybe yep. they put a couple sentences or two um, in addendum, you know, of what they knew the student was doing, but in, I would say, 99% of the cases that I saw, um, you know, it would be the exact same letter as what was submitted previously, and we know the result of that, you know, that was already, yep. and, and I'm not saying, you know, to, to blame your recommendation letter, but, um, but it's not that that's going to be new information um, in your file for the following year. Uh, so just be aware of that, that there's going to be some logistical difficulties in, um, in filing all of that as well. Um, yep. If you do take a gap year, though, it, you know, there's many wonderful reasons to take a, take a gap year. If you decide, okay, I'm going to get invested in this other school, I highly recommend that students do try and um, more apply to college, get into a college in the senior year, and then request a gap year rather than not applying any place in the senior year and trying to apply direct, you know, only from a gap year because I, I think that 
um, that strategy tends not to work for all those logistical reasons. Right, right. And then the only final thing that I want to say about this, and then Mary Sue, if there's anything you wanted to add, is just that what you definitely do not want to do is accept a place at another school, request a deferral, and then apply to other colleges. That is definitely frowned upon in the admissions world. And in fact, when you're granted a deferral, generally the college granting the deferral will have language indicating that their expectation is that you will be attending. They're going to hold that spot for you with the idea that you will be attending the following year. Um, Mm -hmm. So that is not a good idea or uh, plan to have. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else? Yeah. yeah. I would. I would. Just, would. I would agree with that, and and say that sometimes actually, um, it, reneging on your gap on on that deferral year agreement, and in other words, applying to another school while you're already committing to one school during your deferral year, um, can sometimes mean the loss of uh, that offer of admission. So I, I definitely remember times when we had to go back on an offer for a student who was on a deferral year on a gap year. Um, and we found out they were applying other places. We informed the other school, and it ended up being that both colleges um, took back their offers of admission. So it can mean all sorts of bad things. Don't do it. Yep. Exactly. Well, on that note, I think we've definitively answered, just as you did um, at the very beginning, that no, bad strategy. Um, applying, you know, taking the year off and taking a gap year and then reapplying to your top choice school is likely not going to yield a different result. So we would not recommend it. Um, but uh, we have talked about gap years in previous shows. So if you're interested, check out the archives. Um, there's some good stuff in there. If you're just thinking, hey, I just want to take a gap year. It has nothing to do with, uh, right. with um, getting into a different school. Uh, definitely check those out. Uh, all right. Mary Sue, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. And uh, happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Um, We're going to be back in just a minute and we're going to be answering your questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. 
but we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And welcome back, everybody. I am excited to answer your questions. You've sent us lots of great questions. And by the way, if you're listening and saying, hey, I have questions, I want to send them in. Send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. But I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Kathy Ruby, uh, formerly of St. Olaf. Kathy, how are you? I'm great, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. We're going to jump right in. As usual, we have both questions related to finance and questions related to admission. So why don't we start with our first college finance question, Uh, It comes to us from Kelly. Once admitted and a financial package has been received, should you try to negotiate costs? If so, any tips on how to negotiate? All right. So that's a, that's a pretty uh, popular question at this time of year, starting to, starting to ramp up as colleges are starting to send out scholarship offers and sometimes even financial aid awards. And so the answer definitely is yes, you should try to negotiate. Um, it does work best if you wait until you, know, you, you have a good picture of what everybody's giving you um, because the most successful negotiation when you're really comparing merit awards um, are, is when you're using one college's package to leverage another college's award. So, you know, one, one college gives you a, a better award, so you use that to try to get more from another one. So it does help, I think, if you wait until you have the whole picture, which can be frustrating because colleges have different timelines for when they notify you about what they're giving your student. Um, but from there, because as you know, we could do a whole segment 
on this topic. And in fact, we're going to. So the beginning of February, we'll have our annual uh, segment on negotiation. But you can also, in the meantime, go to our blog at getintocollege.com. And if you just search the word negotiate, you will come up with several, several resources there to offer you suggestions on how to do that. All right. Sounds good. All right. So stay tuned. Yes. All right. So I have a question for you now. Um, This is from Michelle, and it says, I've heard that you need to load your resume with extracurricular activities and volunteer and service hours starting your freshman year to be considered over other applicants for admissions or scholarships. Is this true? So, again, we need to always beware of things that start with the phrase, I heard that, right? (laughs) Those are generally followed by at least sometimes complete falsehoods and sometimes gross uh, exaggerations of the actual truth. There's a kernel of truth in there. Um, We've done a ton of shows around extracurricular activities, and so I definitely would encourage you to go to the archives. But the short answer is the colleges want to see students involved in things that are interesting to them. And they like to see both depth and breadth. So what that means is it's not enough to do one thing and to do it in your senior year. Ideally, you're going to do a few things and you're going to do them throughout high school. So ideally starting in freshman year, but maybe starting in sophomore year. The key is what you do is really should be driven by what the student is interested in. So for one student, that could mean working a part-time job and being involved in a few clubs at school. For another student, that could mean being a three-season athlete. For another student, it could mean being very active in um, all things related to writing. So they're writing for the school newspaper. They're copy editor, editor of the yearbook. They write for an outside publication. They do a summer program related to writing. It, it is really more about following interests and doing something. And truthfully, at the most selective level, it's super important. It's such a huge component of the application And when you start looking at schools where they are accepting more than half their applicant pool, which, by the way, is about 79% of the schools out there, then Mm -hmm. it's really just about doing some things outside of the classroom. I think the big misnomer in this is the idea that you must have volunteer and service hours. Colleges really don't care if you do community service or if you don't do community service. That doesn't mean that they don't value it if you do it, just that they don't value it above all else. And there, Mm -hmm. I think, is this idea that there is there are activities and then there's community service they're the same thing a community service is just another Mm -hmm. activity you know so if you're really into that awesome if you're not uh do something that is really interesting to you because as with anything in this life we're all going to be much more invested in and engaged and excited about something that we enjoy doing versus something (laughs) we're doing because someone told us we had to do it Right. Um, you know, right? So so if you're going to apply to colleges with a service mission, then sure, service is probably going to be something they'll look for. But I would argue that if you're not interested in service, then a college with a service mission is probably not a great fit. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, bottom line is if students follow their interests, and like I said, we have done many, many segments on this, so I would encourage going through the archives if you're, you're, you're wanting to hear more. Um, that's really the best way to go. If you can go that way, then you're likely going to have the involvement and the commitment to those activities that the colleges really want to see. Great. All right. 
On to um, this next question, which is, um, which is a great one. It comes to us from TJ. And TJ writes, I've heard anecdotes that parents, oh, I've heard, remember, we're starting with that again, <laughs> that parents who are wealthy enough to not qualify for need-based aid, but not so wealthy as to avoid feeling the pain of college expense, are more often now shunning elite, and in parentheses, expensive colleges, uh, in favor of good quality schools that offer honors programs and or merit aid, which most elite schools do not offer. Are you seeing any trends here? This scenario matches our situation with a son whose college wish list is filled with sixty dollars to $70,000 a year schools. Is such a trend creating a have or have not college atmosphere with the upper middle class squeezed out? Lots of stuff All right. in there. Wow. So that's a, that's a multi-level question, right? Yes. <laughs> So, so the first is let's let's establish some definitions about what he's probably talking about. I mean, I think he's when he's talking about families who who are not qualifying for aid at a high cost elite college. Um, you know, that means we're talking or, or qualifying for very little so that it's not affordable. That's probably families that are making in the two to three hundred dollar a year range, three hundred thousand dollar a year range, <laughs> not two to three hundred. Um, right. To, right. And so, you know, for those families, if you're not qualifying for need based aid or not very much and if you haven't saved a lot um, or maybe you have saved a lot, but you don't want to spend your savings on on that much of a college education um, that, you know, paying the six. $70,000 a year price tag is going to be pretty challenging. Um, and so I think he's identifying certainly a demographic that's out there. Um, and I would say, I mean, and you know this too, elite colleges certainly do worry about their socioeconomic mix um, mm -hmm. and they're paying attention. They're paying attention to the yield within those groups. They're paying attention to what the what the composition of their student body turns out to be. Um, and we have certainly seen elite colleges doing some, some things that are targeted toward the middle class, but I'm going to say most of those initiatives are targeted toward families that probably make in the 80 to 150, $160,000 a year range versus the upper middle income. Um, right. Because colleges are worried about their, 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 uh, their population bifurcating, where they have a lot of really low-income kids and a lot of very high-income kids. So, um, so I think they're paying attention, but I don't know that they're really directing efforts toward toward that demographic. Um, and I would say, I mean, and, and you can perhaps talk about this as well, but I don't know that we have numbers on this, but I can say certainly from my many, many years working in this field um, and talking with college counselors and all kinds of people, anecdotally, certainly I think people are paying much more attention and are much are less willing to pay the sixty, seventy thousand dollar a year um, price tag. That they're definite there are more families who are now paying attention to where they can get merit aid and where they can manage to pay for something less than the full price. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it is. Um, I think it all comes down to a family's priorities. There are mm -hmm. certainly exactly. parents who I think are prioritizing the name and brand recognition of some schools. And the attitude is, if my child can be admitted, because of course that's no given for anybody, right. any student <laughs> out there, um, then we will feel the pain of that sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year and pay it and sacrifice. Um, um, in order to do so. And then there are families who say, I don't think it's worth it. 
And I, if you can get a free ride at another school that is, you know, in our opinion, also a really great school, mm-hmm. then we'd rather have you do that. Um, I, 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 what I would say is I'm not sure that I see a ton of students personally that I have personally seen a ton turn down the big name school for mm-hmm. the, the full ride. And I've had students with that choice. Um, I can tell you that I personally would likely make the choice over the, I hate to use the word full ride because that's tossed around. Right. Like everybody that doesn't full ride, very right? often, actually. But it doesn't happen very often. But to the significant discount on the price versus paying, 50, you know, 60 to 70. First of all, I don't see a, I don't envision a time where I could afford that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, um, even if I could, I would, it would be a significant and serious conversation in our house um, to do that. But I do think that there are many families going into it with the attitude of, we're just going to, we're going to focus on these schools where we think there's going to be merit aid to be had. And we're not even going to distract ourselves with these other applications or are very honest with their children. Yes, you can apply, but ultimately we're going to go for the school that feels like the best fit for the best price. And I do think that that is something more and more people are thinking about. And I applaud it. I think it is a really, really good idea to, you know, to consider that. Um, Because the stakes are high and it'll be interesting to see what happens at those very expensive colleges. And at what point, I mean, certainly now they're not having a problem filling their beds, right? So right. their business model is working, but at some point it may not anymore, but that's that's something they'll have to contend with. Agreed, agreed. Uh, all right, we have, um, we have four minutes before we want to go to break. So I think that you have a question for me that I'm hoping I can yes. answer quickly. Okay, so why don't so we I'm go gonna, to that? I'm going to actually skip to the third one because I think it'll be quicker. Or actually, here's, okay. here's one. Is a recommendation from a 10th grade teacher okay to submit? Um, most colleges want to hear more about the student you are now versus the student you were earlier in high school. And so for schools that require teacher recommendations, ideally, they're going to want to hear from junior or senior year teachers, and many of them will actually specify it. If they specify, I would say no, for sure it's not okay. If they mm-hmm. don't specify, you could go with a 10th grade um, letter writer, and if you really feel like that person's letter is going to be so, so much better than anything a junior or senior year teacher would write, then I guess maybe that would be okay, but it is never my preference, and I I definitely advise students, really, you're better off with a junior or senior year teacher um, at the schools that require teacher recommendations. Um, Great. I could probably answer one more if you want to throw one more at me. Okay. Allison asks, I've heard you should apply to at least 10 schools at a minimum, even if you have no desire to attend them. Is this true? Again, I've heard, I've heard, a pox on, I've heard. <laughs> no, not true. Um, the, the ideal thing for your college list is that the student would be interested in attending every school on the list mm-hmm. and that it has balance. So, sure, you could have a list of 10 reaches that the student would be incredibly interested in attending. But if you aren't, if the student isn't going to get into any of those because they're all stretch schools, then that's not a good list. A student who has five schools that he or she loves and they're all safeties or they're a mix of match and safeties, 
That's mm-hmm. more than enough schools to apply to. So somewhere between, you know, one school and <laughs> I would say a maximum of 10 schools is really your ideal number. And a lot of that is going to depend on um, the how balanced it is. So the students' chances at the schools on the list. And that's almost more important than anything right. coupled with would you go please, for the love of God, do not apply to a school that you have no interest in attending. All that does is, honestly, it takes away a spot from a student who might be very interested in that school, and mm-hmm. it does no good. If you don't want to go there, what good does it do you to get in? You don't want to go, so right. why <laughs> do you need to get in, right? Yes. Silly. So, so no is the answer. And just very quickly before I, I send us off to break, I would say that I generally encourage my students to go with a list that's somewhere between seven and 10 schools. So long as the list has three matches and two safeties, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and then if you want to add a few more reaches or you want to add a few more matches or you want to add another safety, if you can explain to me what you like about each of those schools and that you would enjoy going to any of them, then that sounds like a good list to me, but too much more than that. And then you're applying to too many. (laughs) <laughs> All right. We have um, a couple of really good uh, finance questions coming up. So we're going to go to break. And then when we come back, we're going to jump right into those. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you ever given any thought to what is behind your insurance coverage? Many of us don't think of it as more than that premium you pay on a regular basis. Of course, until you actually need to use it. On CYA with Rhonda, you'll learn to cover your assets and find out what all of that insurance mumbo-jumbo really means. If you're looking for a lucrative career option, Rhonda Lukey will explain how to get into the insurance business. Listen live every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back, and we're answering your questions. And with that in mind, we're going to jump right into it. All right, Kathy, Matthew asks, how can I financially cover the estimated family contribution that that the FAFSA showed me after I completed it? That's a big question. <laughs> That's a million-dollar question, isn't it? No pun intended. Yes. <laughs> right, go go buy a lottery ticket. That's the yeah. answer, no. So um, it's, a, it's a really great question, and the first thing to understand about the estimated family contribution or the expected family contribution is that it may not actually be what you end up paying. So remember that if, if the college offers more merit aid, than the need you have, then you'll pay less than your expected family contribution. And if the college gaps, so they're not able to meet your student's full need, then you'll end up paying more than the expected family contribution. So so that's the first thing to know. Don't get too wrapped up in that number because what really matters is what do the colleges give you. Um, But then once you know what your bottom line is, there's some approaches to take. And and most families will, will cover that expected contribution from a mixture of um, cash flow and savings and financing as a last resort. So, um, you know, savings are somewhat obvious, right? Hopefully you have some money set aside that will help your uh, student pay for college and you can choose to either use those all up front or spread them out over the four years, whatever you're more comfortable with. Um, that that That's a, um, you know, it just depends on, on how you want to use those savings. Um, I do want to encourage you to think about cash flow. Um, a lot of people don't think about it. They think, oh, we live paycheck to paycheck. We can't really pay anything to the college out of pocket. Um, so I, we we don't have any cash flow available. But remember that your your high school senior is leaving your household, and they're expensive. Um, you've been covering expenses for them while they've been living with you for the past 18 years. Um, think about what the grocery bill is and what the hot water bill is and all the extracurricular activities that you pay for, um, all the kinds of expenses that uh, will go down when they leave your household, and they can be significant. Um, so I, now I had it easy. My oldest was an offensive lineman, so the grocery bill went down right away <laughs> as soon as he left. But but you really do find, and especially as, as all of your kids leave, your disposable income does change. And so be looking at that and think about a payment plan. Um, and then there's lots of financing that's available out there. There's Students can borrow up to about twenty-seven dollars to $31,000 in their own name through the federal government. And then beyond that, there are private loans that parents can co-sign or they can borrow a federal parent loan, or you might look at home equity or other kinds of financing that you have. So really, it comes from a variety of, of sources. 
All right. All right. So your next question is, all right, so Teresa asks, your admission chances improve if you apply as undeclared rather than declare a competitively sought major, correct? Well, I like that it didn't start with I've heard that and that (laughs) Teresa is, you know, she's saying this is the right, right? And the answer is wrong. Um, I think when you, there are a few things to unpack about this. First of all, Most colleges do not require you to declare a major when you are applying. And when I say declare a major, in almost all cases, you are actually not declaring a major. All you're doing when you select a major on your application is telling the colleges what you think you are going to major in. Um, What what the nuance there is that let's say you want to apply to be an engineer at many schools, that's a separate school altogether. Mm -hmm. And nursing is another example of that. So in that case, you really are kind of declaring your major by applying to that school. Um, But also what you might find too, is that if you don't apply directly to the school that you want to attend, you actually want to attend that you can't then switch into that school once you arrive Uh, at that college. So Mm -hmm. nursing programs are good examples. A lot of times if you don't enroll as a, as a freshman, that's it. You can't enroll later on. So I think my biggest piece of advice here is that the best applications are authentic applications. And by authentic, I mean, you're not playing games. You're not saying, well, I'm not really, you know, in my heart of hearts, I want to do X, but I'm going to say I want to do Y and hope Mm -hmm. that that makes me more competitive. What it often can do is create a disconnect for the colleges. Well, wow, everything about this screams engineer, and yet they're applying to be a pure science major in physics, or they're applying as undeclared, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really make sense. And when you get a disconnect, you have an application that's not as strong, and you start to think, "Ah, I don't know if this student is really going to cut it in our applicant pool. So my first piece of advice is to be authentic. My second piece of advice is If the student really isn't sure what he or she wants to do once they arrive in college and there is no requirement that that one of their interests that you must start as a freshman, then undeclared might be desirable simply from the perspective that they may not look focused enough to be a great engineering candidate or they might not look focused enough to be a nursing candidate or a you know, or whatever else the area of interest is. So a lot of times I do see students picking a major just to say they picked a major, not because they actually have a true abiding focused interest in that major. Um, So undeclared is certainly not a bad way to go, but it's only a good way to go if you really are undecided. If you are absolutely positive. You know it's something you really want to do. You've got, you know, all of your strengths in school play directly into that major and you've got some activities that are also related to that major and you are just an engineer through and through. I think you hurt your chances if you don't apply to the program that you are desperate for because you're creating a disconnect where there shouldn't be one. And potentially you could be one of the better engineering applicants in that year. I mean, that's the whole point of having schools where you are, you know, where there's a stretch, there's a match and there's safety. And you're trying Mm -hmm. to find the place where you fit. And what good does it do you to get into a stretch school if going to that stretch school means giving up your major? And 
I've seen students do that and I don't get it. That's not why you're going to college. You're going to college <laughs> to get preparation in whatever area it is that you're most interested in. So in short, um, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, I think you need to be authentic. I think you need to either select undeclared because you are undeclared and you really don't know or select a specific major because you are sure that that's the one you want. And if Mm -hmm. you follow that path, good things will happen. Exactly. All right. Um, Next question comes to us from Nidza, and I apologize if I am, am pronouncing that incorrectly. What colleges provide merit aid since I know my family won't qualify for need-based financial aid? Uh-huh. That's a big that's, question. Yeah, that's, that's the like question everybody wants to know. The yes, exactly. Well, unfortunately, there is no one good list out there. Um, I will say there are some websites that that say that they'll tell you about all the colleges that offer um, merit scholarships. There's a website called collegedata.com. There's another one called um, capex.com. And and so, you know, those are databases that say that they provide you with information about colleges that provide merit aid, but I will say I've checked those websites, I've checked the colleges that I know, and I can tell you the information is not exactly accurate. Um, It might be a good starting point, but the best resource to figure out whether a college offers merit aid um, is to review their website and look into both the financial aid office um, and the admission office website, uh, where I often find information about merit-based scholarships is you click in and it'll, um, you'll, you'll have to, there'll be a section called types of aid. And then if you click on grants and scholarships, they usually will distinguish between need-based grants and scholarships and merit-based scholarships. But really you have to research the college websites. Um, a few clues though are, you know, actually most colleges offer merit aid. You know, that's that's a true statement, that most colleges in this country actually offer merit aid. The ones that are least likely to offer it, of course, are the ones that are the most selective um, and most competitive. And sometimes even at a particular college, um, a program that's more competitive won't offer merit aid, whereas a less competitive program might. Um, because remember, the reason that colleges offer merit aid is to entice students to enroll. So colleges that don't need to entice anyone to enroll are not going to offer merit aid. So that, that's a way to eliminate the ones you know won't offer merit aid. Um, and that tends to be, of course, the Ivy Leagues and the highly selective private colleges um, and highly selective public universities as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, it's my turn. Right. I keep forgetting okay. to ask you the next question. Sorry. Hit me. Okay. All right. So the next one comes from Stephanie, and she asks, colleges recalculate the GPA and use an unweighted GPA anyway. So why should I take honors in AP classes? Um, because colleges, you cannot make the blanket statement that colleges recalculate the GPA because not all colleges do recalculate the GPA. Um, Colleges do a variety of things with the information provided to them. Some will, in fact, recalculate a GPA. Um, They will unweight the grades and um, only pull the academic courses. Uh, That's what we did at Penn. Um, But some colleges will recalculate a GPA and add their own weighting system. UMass Amherst is a good example of a school that does that, where they um, are unweighting. The, they're not using the school's weighting system. They use their own weighting system um, with points for honors and or AP. 
Um, and there are schools who pull a GPA right off of the transcript. So there's so many different things that schools do that there's no way to make that blanket statement. But even at the schools where they are recalculating a GPA and unweighting grades and don't reweight them, um, mm-hmm. the fact is at Penn, uh, I always looked at not only what the student, the grades earned, but also the courses in which they were earned. So even if you could have two students who one of whom took all honors in AP and the other took none, they each have a 4.0. Those 4.0s are not equivalent. Um, Mm -hmm. So one would have been marked with the most rigorous curriculum available and the other would have been marked with a college prep curriculum. That was not going to be competitive at Penn and the all honors in AP was what we expected to see or a full IB diploma program or whatever. So... um, if you, I think the advice is you do honors in AP if it makes sense for you to do them. Uh, and there are colleges where they're going to want to see those. Um, and then there are colleges who don't care and who want to see you in a college prep curriculum. So if you really are going to be targeting schools where they primarily want to see that you've taken college prep courses, then it's possible that you don't need to do AP and honors. Um, mm-hmm. But if you can and you can do well, uh, I would do them because the colleges absolutely are paying attention to the rigor of your curriculum. Uh, all right. Next question. Um, we have time for one more. And this one goes okay. to you, Kathy, from Chrissy. I filed my FAFSA right away on October 1st. Can I submit a correction to reduce the amount of asset I reported? Uh, well, the answer is no. I mean, you can. I think the system would let you do that, um, but you shouldn't. Um, and that's because the asset section of the FAFSA that you complete, when, when you're reporting your assets on the FAFSA, you are reporting your assets as of the day that you're completing the form. So it's frozen in time. And so you can't go back in and keep changing your assets as they're depleted, or I guarantee you probably wouldn't think of changing it if they went up, which is the principle behind why the government doesn't want you changing the asset. So if you were to make a change to reduce the amount of asset that you reported, the school would come back out and ask you why you did that. Um, Now, if there was an extenuating reason for why you did it, if if, uh, there was something, a family emergency or something major that happened um, that caused you to make that change or deplete that asset, then you could certainly write to the college about that and see if they're willing to make an adjustment and change that asset for you. Um, but, but just flat out, you're, you're not supposed to go in and keep changing the value of your assets. They are frozen as of the date you complete your application. And remember, too, the calculation of the expected family contribution is focused much more prim- uh, is primarily based on your income, not your assets. So my guess is if you were, your assets changed by several thousand dollars, if that's all we're talking about, it probably didn't make much difference anyway. All right, Kathy, thank you so much. I appreciate being here today. Glad to be here. Have a great holiday. All right, and uh, thanks to Mary Sue, who was our earlier guest. Next week, Ian is hosting. We're going to be talking about colleges with late deadlines. So if you missed that deadline uh, on January 1, there are colleges with later deadlines. We're going to talk about those. We're going to be talking about financial aid award letters, New Year's resolutions. Visit our archives. There is all the stuff that Kathy and I talked about today. There are lots of um, segments on all of these. So you might, if you have time and you're bored and you want more information, check those out. Um, And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.